Welcome to Upfront, the podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. This week, it being Oscar week, I'm talking to Tom Moore. Tom is a filmmaker and co-founder of Kilkenny animation studio Cartoon Saloon, which has been nominated for Best Animated Feature four times at the Academy Awards. His Irish folklore trilogy, Wolf Walkers, Song of the Sea and The Secret of Kells, changed the face of Irish animation and helped usher in a new era for the genre. And I started by asking him a random question. Okay, number 16 here is, tell me something I don't know about you. Something you don't know about me? Uh, when I was a teenager, I had a part-time job in a hairdresser's. Were you any good? No, I was just like washing hair and sweeping the floor and folding up towels. But I was also a, like a part-time superhero, so that kind of made up for it. <laughs> That's, okay, let's start there actually. Go back to... You, uh, in Kieran's College, in Kieran's College, Mad Hurling County, Mad Hurling School, and you're into comic books and superheroes. Yeah. How was that was for you? Definitely, definitely a bit of a weirdo. I was definitely a bit of an outsider. And the superheroes have become very mainstream with all the Marvel movies and all, but back then it was definitely in the realm of extreme geekiness. And I was a delusional enough teenager that, uh, as a very young teenager, let's say around 13 or 14, I used to dress up and go out at night and patrol the lonely streets of Kilkenny, keeping it safe for, for the citizens, you know. Did you have a cape? <laughs> yeah, I kind of had a whole costume. Me and two other friends who happened to be in the animation business too, probably don't want their secret identities out to protect their loved ones. Um, yeah, <laughs> we used to patrol the, the streets of Kilkenny. We were the Living Shadows was our, our name, yeah. <laughs> my mother found out when I was about... 20, I think my 21st birthday, I told my mother that I used to sneak out the window and cycle into town at night to, to be a superhero. And she was absolutely shocked because she retroactively was worried about me, even though I'd managed to survive my uh, crew, the escapades with the supervillains of Kilkenny. What did he actually do? Like just wander the streets at night time? Kind of, yeah, we'd have missions, you know, we'd have missions and stuff. It was pretty, it was pretty funny, you know, and then we'd, uh, we'd log them all in our journal. We'd have like a crime notebook of any crime, but like one or, once or twice, like a, a drunk stranger would bump into us and laugh at us. <laughs> <laughs> I remember there was a whole group of young fellas coming out of a pub or something and we were thinking we were blending into the shadows, you know, and uh, they, they wouldn't see us like in a comic and I remember they're like, oh, who are you? Are you Batman? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Lads, it was bad, yeah. It was bad. We were some kind oh. of a mix of uh, the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles and Batman or something we had in our heads, you know. <laughs> Mad as uh, hatters. How did that go down in school, though? Like, was there bullying around this stuff? Nobody or? knew. Nobody, nobody knew. Nobody knew about our secret identities. If only they knew, hey, readers? But uh, <laughs> I think it was a coping mechanism because I was pretty badly bullied in school. Yeah, I had a pretty hard time. I was definitely a weirdo and I kind of leaned into it a bit too. So it wasn't the best, but we were kind of a little group of outsiders. And then I think around that age, we, we you know, we left Kilkenny to the supervillains and kind of hung up our capes and joined young Irish filmmakers. And then that was kind of where we found our tribe, I think, you know. Okay, talk to me about the animation book then, because that came very early as well, didn't it? Well, they were very interlinked, of course, you know. 
Um, so the 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 fantasy, the high levels of imaginative <laughs> naive fantasy overlapped with consuming vast amounts of comics and cartoons, and some Japanese animation was finding its way to Kilkenny via the VHS tapes. And there was comic shops in Kilkenny at the time. I remember it's hard to imagine, but one remember one summer when I was quite young, young teenager, there was two comic shops in Kilkenny, one in Kieran Street, and then one up near the train station. And uh, so we spent a lot of time hanging out in the comic shops and stuff. That was our little niche. And then in Young Irish Filmmakers, we had access to some of the equipment we needed to mess around with animation, with cameras and, you know, very basic stuff. But it was it was a kind of a bonding thing as well. What was the Young Irish Filmmaker? I, I just I actually spent a summer in Kilkenny in the late 80s. So I I remember Kilkenny as oh, quite yeah. a cool place, actually. Yeah, there was a lot of young bands around. Well, there, was, there was quite a young, cool vibe around the place around that time. You probably felt extra safe, you know. You probably slept a little safer in your bed knowing the streets were being patrolled by the living shadows. <laughs> if only I had known how safe I should have felt. That's the kind of, that's the lonely responsibility of a superhero. People don't even realise, you know, and... You just have to sort of do it, you know, for the good that would have of made the great power comes great responsibility, of course. You know. I would have made a great front page for the Kilkenny people uh, at the time. I only wish, <laughs> I only <laughs> wish I could have delivered <laughs> that one. <laughs> do you know what's fun, yeah. actually? Do you know what's really fun? It's like we had a bit of a hard time in our early years in Kieran's for being kind of weird and nerdy and outsiders and kind of took refuge in the art room or whatever with Mr. Kelleher and he let us paint Batman on the walls or whatever. But... um now, Lighthouse Studios, which we part own, Cartoon Saloon are, are co-owners with Mercury Filmworks from Canada. And Lighthouse Studios is in Kieran's College. So I'm often back in my old uh, secondary school, you know, which is mad because the, the Lighthouse Studios are located in what was the seminary part of the building. So that's wow. always a bit of a Revenge of the Nerds kind of vibe, you know. <laughs> so, so this is your teenage years. Um you grew yeah. up very, very quickly, though, because you were, what, first year college when, when you became a dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife was in Leaving Cert, so we were very young, yeah. And somehow, when I look back at it, I don't know how we did it because we were babies, but somehow we made it work. We moved up to Dublin. I was studying animation, and then she she was studying ceramics and NCAD, and she's quite a successful ceramics career now. And her, her son is 27 now, and we're grandparents, so we're very proud of her. Of our granddaughter, Mara, you know. But, you know, I'm thinking like back at that time, we're talking what, the early 90s? Are we, what what year are we mid-90s. talking about then? He was born, Ben was born in 95. Yeah, Ben was born in, yeah, mid 90s. Yeah. Seems like yesterday. But it would have been a time when it would have been less acceptable for, you know, a young couple like yourselves, a girl in Leaving Cert, guy oh, in Foster yeah. College to, to, to oh, keep yeah. going with that baby, with that family. It's funny, like we snapped into accepting it and 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 you know making a go of it. Yeah, when I look back at it, I'm sure people had different thoughts about it. But I suppose we were kind of in our own bubble, and we had a good group of friends who kind of supported us. And in fairness, our parents supported us too. You know, in our decision and supported us right through college and all. But you know, when I look back on it, I think I think ninety five or ninety six was when the last Magdalene Laundry shut down. You know. So the idea that Lee Slack would have ended up somewhere like that wasn't beyond, like wasn't a distant memory, you know. Um, so it's mad, but we lived in our own little bubble, I suppose, you know. Yeah, you're amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great story, the fact that you're, you're there and now you're a grandfather, which I want to talk to you about in a minute. But I want to talk to you about the movies now. Just the idea, first of all, the idea of if you build it, they will come. Like, did you really, 
when you went back to Kilkenny after college, did you really ever imagine that you could have built the studio you have ended up with there and that you could have produced oh, no. anything like? No, the, I know. The scale of it is way beyond. Like We were kind of coming back to Young Irish Filmmakers for a year or two to make a film, which was naive enough anyway. And there was only 12 of us or something. And that was, you know, mad in a way, but also that kind of beautiful naivety that we didn't know any better, so we just did it. And it was definitely the spirit of young Irish filmmakers. And Lisa Lott was still finishing college, so I had been during the week on my own, you know, while she was still up in NCID. So it's mad how precarious it was. But I was lucky. I had good partners like Nora and Paul, really good partners, and more like old friends like Ross Stewart and other people, Ross Murray, a lot of people I knew and growing up. We all wanted to do it. And uh, and yeah, it's mad when I look back on it. Like the ambition wasn't was pretty massive, considering that we were so young and had no experience, and we were in Kilkenny. But a few things just came together. Filmmakers was great. Mike Kelly giving us a space and supporting us, and then it was just the start of the internet thing, really. So we were able to make a living from Kilkenny doing things like e cards and you know stuff for the online. Um, just a just at the very beginning of that kind of dot-com boom. So somehow we scraped along, but when I look at where we are now, with the amount of people living and working in Kilkenny, working in animation, because of that naive ambition back in 1999, it does sometimes blow my mind, I have to say, yeah. How many, at the height, like when you're at top production uh, with a feature, say, like how many people are we talking about? Well, I think the last number I heard around was about 300 people that we had working with us between Lighthouse and Cartoon Saloon. But that's a lot of, that's several projects on the go at once, you know. So that would have been when we had a feature film and a TV series on the go in Cartoon Saloon. And maybe Lighthouse might have had two or three TV series on the go, you know. So between the two animation studios, it does it does blow my mind, I have to say. As soon as I look around, we'd be in Billy Burns or the back of Ryan's or something, and I look around and go, God, we managed to drag all these kind of arty nerds here so that we could have a gang to hang out with, you know. <laughs> it's, it's actually extraordinary. Like, it's just extraordinary that you could start from zero and, and get to where you've yeah. landed with this. Uh, and also, like, just even... The success you've had with every feature film that has come I out know. of Kenny, it, it is like I, looking at you think like Scorsese and Spielberg couldn't have had this much success in their early years. <laughs> Seriously, know, yeah. it's wild. It's wild, all right. And I definitely, I suppose we would have looked more towards animation, and it definitely even within that, like most people would have imagined that they. And I think I did for a long time too. I think the first ten years or so until Secret of Kells was released. It was hard to kind of believe that this was going to work out, you know. And even after Secret of Kells came out, our first feature film, there was a little bit of a of a sense of like, okay, we've done that, so should we just pack up and now go and get real jobs, you know? But we kept going, and it was amazing. It's amazing to me the power of that. And I remember Mike Kelly and Young Irish Filmmakers had a had a quote, which I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was something along the lines of "There's power in doing," you know, whatever you think you can do do it because by getting going and starting there's a momentum and people see you're doing something and they want to join in and stuff whereas you could spend a long time saying oh if only things were more aligned um, I would do it but I, I can't possibly you know so the mad naivety of youth seemed to spawn enthusiasm in others and people wanted to join the gang and you know. It was as well I think a hopeful time the mid 90s in Ireland generally was a time where there was like possibilities like it was the 80s were in the rearview mirror. 
there was a sense that we were, you know, top of the world there. The Celtic tiger. Yeah, there was a Celtic tiger feeling and there was money sloshing around. Like we didn't have much money, but at the same time we were lucky. You know, we had FOSS grants and that helped us kind of tick along. And as I said, the, the dot-com boom was happening. And although a lot of our friends and contemporaries were making a lot more money than us and buying houses and driving fancy cars and stuff, it was still possible for a bunch of 20-somethings, early 20-somethings to kind of um, scrape along and get something going. And uh, I wonder what the environment is like now. I, I wouldn't say it's as forgiving, you know. It was a great time. It's funny, it was just last week I was over in Paris with my wife Lisa Lott and we went to see Morrissey, you know, from the Smiths. And it was funny, we arrived late at the gig because the plane was delayed and it was all dark. And so we went in and of course he was singing all the, the stuff from our youth and we were in a nostalgia and it felt like we were in the 90s again. And then when the lights came up and we looked around, it was mostly grey-haired, middle-aged people <laughs> like ourselves, you know. And it was this amazing how transporting it can be music and stuff back to a time. And it's it's mad to, it's mad to think, yeah. And it's nearly like it's coming on 25 years or so now. It's mad, yeah. Tell me about that first Oscar nod. Um, that must have been some buzz, was it? It was wild, all right. Because as I said, after Secret of Kells uh, was finished, we, we kind of hit a rough patch. It was around 2008, 2009. And, uh, and as you know, the, the, the Celtic Tiger had well and truly sort of gone from a roar to a whimper by then. And the world was in recession. And we had released this film and, you know, it had great reviews and had won awards and stuff, but it hadn't done a lot of business. And so we were kind of, you know, dusting ourselves off and not really, not really sure what was next. And so it was a massive endorsement of all that work we'd put in. And I remember thinking it, it sort of meant that I hadn't wasted my 20s after all kind of thing. And, but it came out of nowhere. We had no idea. We didn't expect it. And it really was a massive gift from the universe. And the fact that there were fellow nerds over there in Los Angeles in the Academy who saw what we were doing and appreciated what we were doing and took it upon themselves like a lot of volunteers almost there was a an animator called Jamie Bolio who'd worked in Disney and stuff and she saw our film when she was in Scotland and she started literally handing out DVDs to other members of the animation industry including academy members and stuff and word of mouth buzz got as a nomination which is a massive um, fortune you know it was great and it it really made us commit to keeping going you know and again, I, I doubt if that would happen now because now it's such a professional operation getting yourself before the the academy members again. You know that it's huge amounts of money and time and energy tends to go into that now. But well, it was even then. The mad thing was, it was even then, and it just shows that, like, even like what I've discovered since I joined the academy. Of course, there's the famous actors and the famous directors, but the vast majority of the academy members are fellow filmmakers. You know, and when they do see something worth celebrating, they tend to. They tend to want to celebrate it, you know, and definitely in the animation branch, there's a lot of people who are enthusiastic to discover independent talent and stuff, you know, but it is getting harder and harder, I will admit, yeah. A line I never really expected to hear out of a Kilkenny man was, since I joined the Academy. (laughs) (laughs) That's another thing. I think Kilkenny per capita, I'd say Kilkenny per capita, Katie, sorry to cut across you. Now that I think of it, we have so many members now here in Cartoon Saloon, so many Academy members here in Cartoon Saloon. I'd say we must have one of the highest head counts of Academy members in Europe here in Kilkenny. It's mad, you know. That is mad. That's a mad idea. I love it. Um, the the style and the reason, of course, that people were putting and handing over DVDs of it was that it was such a, a unique style at that time. It, it's such a mark of 
of, uh, you know, that that Celtic kind of background, the hand-drawn at a time when the whole CGI thing was, was, you know, just everywhere. Did you ever, I mean, did you have a sense at that time or did people come to you and say, listen, lads, you're going to have to get with the programme here? Or was it always something that you were committed to? We were always committed to it and there wasn't much debate within the studio about that because that's why we'd come down to Kilkenny because there wasn't really jobs in hand-drawn, definitely not in Ireland. Where there might have been actually in the 80s, there was American studios here that maybe inspired us when we were kids, seeing that stuff was being made in Ireland. They were all closing down and in fact we bought all the desks and everything, the animation desks from one of those American studios that was closing down. They definitely thought we were mad as, mad as hatters or whatever to be... um to be starting off trying to make a hand-drawn film. And then there was this kind of, we kind of stuck at it long enough that it came back around. And I think it was refreshing for people. By 2009, 2010, in America, like another guy who went to Ballyferma College in Dublin, a few years ahead of me, Richie Bainham, just won his second Oscar for the second Avatar. But back then he had just done his first. I remember meeting him over there and it was kind of amazing because that was the cutting edge of CG. And we were both nominated the same year and we had kind of stuck to our guns and we're still even drawn on paper with pencils and stuff. And he loved to see, like I think he was another one of the cheerleaders on our behalf over there in Los Angeles because he was sort of amazed and delighted to see that something sort of retro like that could be recognised. But I think it was also a recognition, as you said, of the kind of the Celtic folklore, the Irish folklore, with the surprise to everyone. It was something refreshing. And I you think you see that a lot, that the the, the business tends to um, honour people that go for something bold and different rather than copying everyone else, you know. Yeah, no, it was so special. Um, another random question. Another number one to 20. Um, uh, let's go for 18. What book are you reading right now? What book am I reading right now? Um, um, it's called the, It's Lonely at the Centre of the Earth. It's an autobiocomic by an amazing 23-year-old cartoonist who's stuck. She's just released, she's released a, a book last year during the pandemic that was really successful and now she's made a comic of her stuckness. Uh, what do I do as a follow-up? And she did that kind of classic thing of making a comic about the fact that she can't decide what to do for her follow-up. It's a great comic, though. And I love it, you know. But I l- read a lot of comics. They are graphic novels, you know. Would you ever think of going down that road? Yeah, I've done a few comics. And we've done, and we're in the middle of doing uh, adaptations for the American market with uh, little brown publishers of all our films um, into comic book form. And I always like to draw a few bonuses because I, I always kind of thought I'd be a tattoo artist or a comic book artist or something. I never thought I'd end up in any way a kind of businessman. And so I always like to kind of keep a toe in that. So I do bits and pieces of it, but it's a fairly lonely job too. Like to make a comic or a graphic novel on your own is really just you and the and the desk. And what I love about animation is the collaborative nature that there's so many of us working together. I'm constantly inspired by the other artists around me. So... That's what keeps me away from just going and doing comics. But it seems attractive sometimes too because the other side of collaboration is there's a lot of HR and a lot of people to deal with. and you know. <laughs> okay, the themes of the trilogy. Uh, so we have The Secret of Kells, The Song of the Sea and Wolf Walkers. Actually, I should tell you, we have a cuddly toy, a, a seal, which is very ragged looking now at home, which is called Silky, which my one of my uh, daughters has had since she was four. And my other daughter said oh, to me what? last night when I told her I was doing this, she said, oh, my God, that was the first 
movie, Song of the Sea, was the first movie that ever made me cry in a cinema. Oh, so, God, that's gorgeous. There that's you go. a great endorsement. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I have a funny story about the movies like that. I was teaching a master's program there in, in Paris in the Goblins Animation School because I took a sabbatical last year and was just drawing and painting and stuff in Paris. And uh, I, I spent the whole year kind of mentoring this young person and uh, she wasn't that young either. I'd say she was mid-twenties, you know. And uh, her dad came up to me at the graduation and she said her first ever trip to the cinema was to The Secret of Kells, which kind of made me old and proud at the same time, you know. Yeah, no, they were great, great, great movies. And the themes, I was just going to say there, like earlier, they're odes to power, the power of art and love, aren't they? Like they are, art and love can conquer all. Mm, and storytelling. I think we make meaning of the world by stories and the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell about ourselves can really change how we how we interact with each other and, and it can change the world, I hope, you know. Is there something as well about the hand, the quality of hand drawn that it, you can somehow feel the emotion uh, from the hand into the into the drawing that you'll never really recreate on CGI? Yeah. And I mean, now we're facing some really interesting challenges with the rise of artificial intelligence in art and doing some really impressive stuff. And I think our response to it will be look, the same as our response back in the late 90s to CGI is just leaning into what's special about the human touch. I think I think there's definitely an emotional connection for the audience. It might be a bit subtle, but definitely for the people making it, it's a different way of spending your day like spending your day drawing is much it's, it's to me is like a mindfulness practice or something so it's definitely something I'd never want to give up and I think that comes across to the viewers a lot of the time and then and then on the other hand I suppose there's something timeless about drawing you know like CG kind of dates fairly quickly like the first Toy Story which was so impressive when I started college in 1995 um, that was like that looked uber realistic to me but I look at it now and it looks pretty ropey and kind of you know like dated whereas hand-drawn films like Bambi or whatever which are like 70 years old or something they still look great so I, I do think there's something timeless about hand-drawn stuff. I was thinking that with the artificial intelligence mind-blowing when, when you yeah. see what that can do now it's actually like it really it's a bit scary actually it just struck me that people like yourselves will have the last laugh here really because the one thing they will never be able to do is hand draw those. Yeah, I I think in a way it's like, I, I'm not sure where AI fits into the history of art because we've had stuff before like the camera or CGI and stuff. And now AI is another thing. And I think it's in some ways it's more profound than we realize because it's a massive, it's going to be a, it's going to affect every part of society. And I think in every part of society that it touches, we're going to rediscover and be re-enchanted with what's lovely about handcrafted things or the human elements. And and it'll be interesting to see how everyone reacts to it, whatever industry it comes into. But my wife has a ceramic studio here in Kilkenny called The Clay Rooms. And of course, you could, you could 3D print ceramics if you wanted to. And we've been able to do that for a long time. But people still love coming in and getting their hands dirty. And... And then they have a new appreciation for the handmade ceramics that they might look at because they've made one themselves. And I think that's where we're going to head back towards that. We're definitely going to, we're going to take, I think the advantages of AI will be totally impossible to ignore and they, and it will profoundly change a lot of things. But I do think it'll also create a, a new appreciation for handmade stuff.
I hope so, anyway. Is there conversations, though, within your industry now about a possible existential threat to the whole industry? Like that if you can just tell a computer program to draw you this? Yeah, when I was young, I used to be frustrated that people would think that you could just press a button and the computer would do it for you because there was always a huge amount of manpower, even in a Pixar movie. That was, you know, it was all humans making those movies but using the computers. And the AI has take, stripped out a lot of um, those jobs. And it's like, you know, in one sense, anyone can be an art director now and, and just type in what they want and it'll spit out an image, which is... It's going to definitely punch holes in parts of the business, I think for sure. So there's definitely an ongoing conversation as we watch technology develop. And it's been the, the story of my whole career, you know, like as as we were saying, at the start we were kind of reacting to the CG and now the AI is just like a continuation of that story. But it is it is definitely interesting because will people still be willing to pay what it costs to make something by hand? Or, you know, will, you know there's, a, there's a kind of a, a question is, can handcrafted art exist in a capitalist society where the main incentive for anything is to do it faster and cheaper and you can't compete with an AI as a human artist so we are kind of relying on a bit of a a touchy-feely interaction with the audience and you know we've been thinking about that a lot like how do we make sure that the audience understands and appreciates what's different about what we offer than what could be created with AI yeah it's a really interesting question and Definitely interesting times to be living through, for sure. Yeah, it really feels like we're on a cusp of something and it's just not quite clear where it's going to take us. Uh, I was going to say you're a committed vegan, but I don't think I've ever met an uncommitted vegan. Uh, <laughs> y- y- you, This is rooted in your strong views about animal rights. Yeah, and it's funny how that relates to the AI. I've been doing a deep dive into AI and the concept of consciousness and sentience and where do we draw the line? Because we're very good at anthropomorphing our cars and thinking they have a personality. And we're also very good at convincing ourselves that animals don't have an emotional life worthy of consideration, you know. And so I think AI is going to challenge us to ask ourselves, really, where do we draw the line? And that side of things has always been what motivated me since I was a child, first to be vegetarian and then to be vegan. But now we're seeing more and more evidence of the environmental impact of how animal agriculture affects, you know, the environment, the climate crisis. And so there's just more and more reasons to, to promote a, a plant-based lifestyle, you know. I was thinking this, I was watching a rerun of uh, Chicken Run, which I love, uh, that movie, Chicken Run. <laughs> and again, watching it as a family, you're thinking, and I will be serving chicken for dinner this evening. And there's something just <laughs> a bit odd about this. What age were you when you started thinking, I'm not sure I want to eat animals? It's funny you mentioned chickens, you know, my, my grandparents, I mean, like most people in Ireland, they're not too far from the agricultural, you know, lifestyle. And my grandparents had a farm. and Now it's a pretty industrial pig farm that my uncle runs. But back then it was a bit more of an old McDonald's farm with lots of different, you know, types of animals. And I used to love playing with the, the chickens. And I remember my uncle, who was a, you know, your average hardy Irish guy, a young young fella, asked me to pick out a chicken. I thought he told me I could pick out one to be my pet, and I picked out a chicken, and he strangled it in front of me. No. And as my as as my granny plucked the chicken, and I sat crying, I realised I wasn't going to eat it. <laughs> that was sort of the end of it for me. And then, as I said, there was just been. I mean, Morrissey came along, and more and more things kind of came along to compound that decision that I made as a young child. And and as I say, there's even more 
have reasons now to, to commit to, maybe even more so for climate reasons than anything else, you know. Do you consider yourself a political person? That's a good question. I suppose we're all political animals to some extent because we, uh, you know, we're kind of ruled by our consciousness and uh, I think I'm a bit of a lefty for sure. And yet I don't I don't uh, relish politics at all, you know. I think it's a, a complicated and, and difficult uh, world to engage in and you have to be relatively neutral, especially when you're running an organisation that, you know, represents, you know, 300 people, you know. In terms of that organisation and, and, you know, the, the families you have supported, actually, you know, that they've been able to put bread on the table because of what they're doing down there in Kilkenny with you guys. Did you ever think of pulling out and, and moving to L.A.? Seriously think it? Because I'm sure you must have gotten an unbelievable number of offers over the years. Uh, yeah, not to move the whole studio. I would have been offered a few times just myself to go and, and work in, you know, as a director or something in studios there. And there was a period where I think uh, Paul Young, my business partner, thought it would have made sense to have at least an office in LA. And there was a brief period there just uh, around the time that Jerry Sheeran, our managing director, joined us. We were debating whether we should at least move to Dublin, you know, um, just even for even for staff that they could work in some of the other animation studios and easily come and work for us without having to move to Kilkenny. You know, we were just far enough away from Dublin that it was difficult for a lot of the Irish animators to contemplate a career. And that's why Lighthouse made sense to us. And definitely when Jerry came in, he could see there was an advantage to being in Kilkenny. And we kind of leaned into that and made it part of our kind of mission to, to kind of build a community here and to, and to take advantage of all the, the positives of being here in Kilkenny, you know. Did I read somewhere that you were planning to um, experiment with some micro doses of psychedelic drugs there after uh, after Wolf Walkers? <laughs> oh yeah, all kinds of micro doses, and I didn't get much from the micro dosing. Really, I was in Amsterdam for four months learning Dutch oil painting, and I thought I'd I'd try the uh, micro dosing, and I didn't I didn't find a much um, difference. And if I took enough that I felt a difference, I wasn't much use trying to do any painting you know but uh, I swear by I'm a member of the Psychedelic Society in London and I swear by the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics and I think we're going through a psychedelic renaissance and I think spiritually and in terms of mental health they have a lot to offer and for a long time I've been really fascinated by the psychedelic traditions of indigenous communities and I'm even developing a project at the moment um, that kind of speaks to Native American spirituality and I am, I am fascinated by that. Yeah, there's a, there's there's a doors of perception that we don't access in our day to day lives that might give us some clues to where we might need to go, you know, in the future. That can only be accessed through conscious use of psychedelics. Yeah, uh, like shamanism in this world. I, funnily enough, I was li- was listening to a report yesterday that I think it's chimpanzees. They have now discovered <laughs> that they spin to get to make themselves dizzy and that the thinking is that that they are actually seeking a kind of an altered state. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing that like there's and this need sometimes to shake everything up because we get very rigid in our thinking and to be able to think laterally is going to be really important I think to survive in this century with all the mad stuff that's coming at us and what I'm excited about with the renaissance of, psych- of conscious use of psychedelics I'm not endorsing people just going mad and dropping loads of acid and I'm talking about you know very either taking inspiration from the the shamanic traditions 
our, our modern science is also pointing to conscious use of, of psychedelics as a, as a problem solving thing as much as a therapy as much as a spiritual practice so it's very interesting yeah and for creativity as well presumably well I think I think creativity and spirituality probably owe a lot to you know the stoned ape theory do you ever hear that the idea that we co-evolved with psychedelics that some of our our ape-like ancestors might have discovered some mushrooms or something and it might have opened a, a way of thinking in their minds that led to religion and art and a lot of things that we hold dear, you know. Okay, we're back to our spitting apes now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're a grandfather, Tom. How is that? I love it. I tell you, I was a bit freaked out to become a granddad at, at 40. She's five years old now. Absolutely the sunshine of my life. And um, just, yeah, I'm looking forward. We have we have her first St. Patrick's weekend and I'm really looking forward to seeing her again. And she's my best, um, my best critic as well. I love showing her our stuff. And it's very funny. She often, she doesn't spare me at all. She often just prefers a, a Disney princess movie over our films. <laughs> but I'm, uh, I'm, my funniest story with that is we built her a little playhouse for her fourth birthday. And I, I offered to paint a mural of Robin and May from Wolfwalkers on it. And she said, no, I want Elsa and Anna from Frozen. So it was put in my place. And I was at an animation event and I met Jennifer Lee, who directed Frozen. And I told her this story that I had a bone to pick with her, that my granddaughter preferred Frozen over Wolfwalkers. And Jennifer told me to tell my granddaughter that she prefers Wolfwalkers to Frozen. It was nice. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, okay, one more random question and i let you go, Tom. We'll go for five in honour of Mara. Tell me one regret you have in life. Oh, one regret I have in life. That's a good question. Never really um, putting the time in as a young man into like music or, yeah, I just, I wish I'd get, like, I wish I'd really given it a, a bit more time, you know? And uh, it's one of those things I regret. And I suppose it's never too late. But I always think that it's one of those things that if you if you foster in a child, they'll have it for life, you know. What do you do next? Well, what aren't, yeah, it's mad. I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle now of developing a new feature film about the, the relationship, the friendship, really, between the Choctaw people in Oklahoma and the Irish going back to the, the, the famine and the time they sent money. So I'm, I'm cooking up a story about that and having a great time diving into Native American folklore and spirituality and doing sweat lodges and all kinds of mad plant medicine to tap into that world. It's great. It is an absolute pleasure talking to you, Tom. Thanks a million. Thanks, Katie. I hope none of that was too controversial or <laughs> strange for you. I hope it was okay. And that was Tom Moore. Subscribe now to get new episodes on your feed when they're published and get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear featured. On Twitter, we're at RTE Upfront or send us a WhatsApp message to 087 677 1000. Talk to you next week.